Uh, I almost forgot something the last couple of weeks, and I know that had I continued to forget this, you would have been sorely disappointed. Pop quiz. Pop quiz. You say, Brother Brian, why do you do what you do? I believe that the primary ministry of the church is the preaching of the gospel. I believe that. been underneath it all my life. This church has been built on it. I've been involved in Peace Tree where it was built on preaching. But I also believe that the Lord taught us in the gospels that there's different ways to teach. He used object lessons. He called children to himself and used them as an object lesson. He killed a guy. Well, I wouldn't say he killed. He allowed a man to die by the name of Lazarus. Used him as an object lesson. Used a storm as an object lesson. He killed an, a, a fruit tree as an object lesson. And he asked questions to his disciples. Imagine that. He very rarely asked questions. But he asks questions. Whom do men say that I am? Whom do you think I am? What sayest thou? He asks the men on the road to on the road to Emmaus, what things? So he has a way of engaging in conversation in order to most likely expose our ignorance so that he can give us an education. And he likes, when on occasion, to expose our ignorance so that we could see our ignorance, that we need to be educated. And the Bible does that. So, I feel like since there's a biblical precedence for doing so, I ask questions from time to time to get you involved. After all, if Jesus sanctioned it, then I might have the liberty to do so as well. Pop quiz. Let's go through these real quick. There are nine questions I want to ask. Two bonus questions. The two bonus questions are somewhat difficult. But if you've been paying attention, you, know, you should know the answers. But the first nine questions are in the text. Plain as day. The text is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. And Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So the first nine questions are going to deal with the first three verses, these three verses. And if you follow the progress of thought in regards to the questions, it will help you prepare for the next question. They're in sequence for a reason. And those of you that are visiting, don't panic. I'm not going to call on you. 
So from question number one, name two reasons why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. All right, now where'd you get that at? You had it memorized, so where'd you get it at? All right, so okay, you, you got the first one right. It's the power of God. It would have helped had you read, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for everybody else to understand. Okay, what's the second reason? Which is in verse what? Verse 18. That's right. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Very good. All right. What two people groups are mentioned in this text? The what? The Jews and the Gentiles. What text are we talking about? Yes. What verse? Read verse 16. There it is. So you had it right. We got to name the verse. Because I got to know that you not only memorized it, but you see it in the text. Real important. Okay? Brother Todd, she just told you, or told us, what the two people groups were, which was Jews and Gentiles in verse 16. What must these people groups do to be saved? in verse 16. There you go. Say it louder so someone will hear you. They must believe. They got to believe what, Brother Todd? Okay. Or the gospel, verse 16. They have to believe the gospel. Very good, Todd. Well, this is a softball question. Let's see. Brother Doug. True or false, the imputed righteousness of Christ is a passive act of God. You've got a 50-50 chance on this. The imputed righteousness of Christ, is it a passive act or not? Is the imputed righteousness of Christ a passive act of God? True or false? He said true. What's the, what's the correct answer? It's false. We kept saying it over and over again. The imputed righteousness of Christ is not a passive act of God. It is an invincible force. It affected a race of men. It's not passive. It's active. It got the job done, and the effects of Calvary is still ongoing. Okay? Very good. Hard question. It has to do with the one we just asked, Brother Doug. Talking about the imputed righteousness of God. Why is the gospel the power of God unto salvation? Brother Mark, all right, that's right, okay, that's good. The verse is right, verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Paul is explaining in verse 17 
why the gospel is the power of God unto salvation in verse 16. Why is the gospel the power of God? Because of imputed righteousness. The imputed righteousness of Christ is the power of God. It is not passive. It is active. Do you understand? Calvary changed everything. Okay. Here's an easier question. What does from faith to faith mean? Sister. Sister Guida. Well, you've been out. I'll scratch that. Scratch that question. You've been out. I, I don't want. I don't want to put you in a bad situation. I am being merciful to my sister. That's part of that answer. Yes, because we're quoting out of that text, Brother Archie. What does the phrase in verse seventeen, "from faith to faith," mean? That's exactly right. Yay! It's the saving faith of the Jews in verse 16 and the saving faith of the Greeks in verse 16. Outstanding. What scripture text does Paul quote to prove that such faith is biblical? You had to be paying attention. It's found in what text, what verse? Where's the quote at? The key phrase, as it is written, what verse is that? Verse 17. Now, if you have a margin in your Bible, you may have a reference there for that quote, and it's going to tell you in your margin what the quote is. Does anybody have that? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Okay? Write that down. He's quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. For the just shall live by his faith. Okay? Why did he, why did he say that? He's proving that the saving faith exhibited by the saved Jew in verse 16 and the saved Jew in Saved Gentile in verse 16 is biblical. Okay? That this issue concerning imputed righteousness that a man is justified by faith is scriptural. Okay? Verse number, excuse me, the eighth question. The phrase is being revealed, which is mentioned in verses 17 and 18, refers to the ministry of which person of the Godhead? This is multiple choice. you got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. You have a choice here. But which one of the three we talked about for a month is associated with this ministry of revelation? The Holy Ghost. Correct, Brother Todd. Alright, so the, it refers to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Very good. Name two things Paul now says is being revealed. Uh, I can't hear you, sister. The righteousness of God is number one. Sister Kathy, name number two. I'm picking on you for a reason. 
the wrath of God. It was the same answer of the question you just you had from the gate, from the very start. So, there's two things being revealed now. God's righteousness that saves and the wrath of God. Okay? So, congratulations. I thought you guys did really good tonight. Bonus questions. These are the tough ones. In this workshop, what do we mean when we say that a particular truth or statement is apocalyptic? We use the word apocalyptic about 10,000 times, and we explained it. In fact, I'll give you a clue here. It's the Greek word translated revelation or to reveal. Is being revealed is the Greek word. Apocalyptic is the Greek word, right? So when we, when we say that a certain truth is apocalyptic, what are we saying? It's present tense, yes. But what are we, what are we saying? What does it mean apocalyptic refer to? I told you this was tough. Anybody want to venture a guess? It's inspired by God, but it's associated with someone. The revelation of Christ. Now we're going in the right direction. Not just a revelation of Christ, but it's associated with the person of Christ and his coming. Okay? So when Jesus came, okay, there was a manifestation of such truth that it held the accountable, the world accountable to a different standard. He exposed their hearts. The wrath of God is now being revealed in a, in a new way, not previously revealed before because of Jesus Christ. And the righteousness of God, which is now being revealed, is associated with the very person of Christ. Why? Because you cannot be saved apart from the righteousness of Christ. Both the righteousness of Christ and the wrath of God now being revealed are associated, here's the point now, of apocalyptic. It's associated with the person and coming of Jesus Christ. What coming are we talking about right now? His first advent. What do you mean by first advent? We're talking about when he became a baby and he became the incarnate Son of God. But it's going to culminate... God's righteousness is going to be further glorified and the wrath of God is going to be further intensified when? At the second coming of Christ. Both truths are identified with the coming of Jesus Christ. Or as Sister Dolores just said, the revelation of Christ. Jesus set a whole different standard. Okay, last one. I'm using my marker here. Deluvian. Okay, antediluvian. What does that word mean? Huh? Before the flood. Alright, anti. Now, this is not saying anti. Anti means against. Anti means before. 
Diluvian means flood or deluge. So when we say antediluvian age or the antediluvian generation, we're talking about the generation of people recorded in the Bible that lived prior to the flood of Noah. That's important. I mean, I've been quoting it now or using that term for about 15 times. We might as well nail it down, make sure we understand what Brother Brian's saying. And we're going to be using it in the future here. Now, you did it excellent. I hope that this helped you. I hope you had fun. And I trust you profited by it. Okay. I want to begin by reading verses 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. We're going to teach tonight, and we're going to end up preaching tonight on verse 18. And I want to begin by quoting this statement made by Bengal, as reported by the commentator Douglas Moo. He said, in regards to verse number 18, here's the quote, The wrath of God which is revealed from heaven significantly implies the majesty of an angry God and his all-seeing eye and the wide extent of his wrath. This is the part I want to emphasize again tonight. Whatever is under heaven and yet not under the gospel is under his wrath. I want to ask you a question. Are you under the gospel? If you are not under the gospel, the Bible says right here that you are under the wrath of God. By saying or asking the question whether or not you are under the gospel, I am not saying, are you a church member? coming faithfully and hearing the gospel preached. That's not what we're saying. I am not saying that you've been baptized. I am not saying you, are a, you enjoy preaching. I'm asking whether or not you have ever personally been a recipient of the saving grace of God and the merits of Christ's gospel. Not everybody who goes to church are underneath the power of the gospel. The gospel is something that God does that you cannot manufacture. It is an act of God to put you 
under the saving merits of Christ to where you are a recipient of the grace of God. And it changes you. You are conscious of this act of God. It's not something you have done. Something you have said. And any confusion on this exposes you to the wrath of God. You may be unconscious of it. Unaware of it. You don't see it, smell it, or feel it. But God's Word is true. You have to accept what God has said in His Word, not because you feel anything, but because it said so. And if there's any question whatsoever, you say, I know I'm saved. On what basis? On what basis? I just know that I said the right things. You're trusting on something you're saying. And God hates it. If you're trusting in something you're doing or have done. I said the sinner's prayer. God hates it. I made a decision for Christ. God hates it. You're trusting in something you're doing. You're trusting in your own resources. You are trusting in your own personal righteousness. And God hates it. You, If you have never submitted yourself to the righteousness of Christ and understand you are in need of this righteousness, you are under the wrath of God. That's sobering. That in the house of God you have a mixed multitude. And they're all pretending to be saved. They're all believing to be saved. But God knows them that are His. And He's marked them out. And there's goats in the congregation. And there's sheep in the congregation. Some are delivered from the wrath of God to come. And there's some that are not delivered from the wrath of God to come. You are under the wrath of God. Let that sink in. So, Jesus said, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The sinner, soon as he is born, is under the wrath of God. And he hasn't a clue. But God has revealed from heaven this is the case. In clearest of terms. Last week we laid out further arguments. Endorsing the view that Paul was referencing the Antediluvians. As the main culprit. Which started the downward spiral of the human race. The first point considered was the absence of any specific physical judgments and people groups mentioned here in chapter 1 of Romans. We noted that Paul mentioned both Jews and Gentiles in verse 16 of chapter 1. We just made reference to that. And also Romans 2.9. But he does not address the Jews specifically until chapter 2, verse 12. In addition, 
Paul used the aorist tense 11 of the 14 times mentioned in verses 21 through 27, suggesting very strongly that Paul had his eye on a monopolar world containing Jews and Gentiles in their infantile state, making them guilty of violating, get this, making them guilty of violating the same general revelation that was presented in creation and the command against idolatry. There is no evidence whatsoever, some have have suggested, like Douglas Moo, for example, that Paul is referencing Israel's case of idolatry at the golden calf in verse 23. Let's read it. And change the glory of the uncorruptible God in an image made like the corruptible man and the birds and the four-footed beasts and creeping things. But instead, as far as Paul is concerned, both groups, Jews and Gentiles, were represented by their ancestral fathers, guilty of rejecting truth and committing idolatry apart from the law which was yet to come. The Jews didn't have to have the law to be condemned. They were already condemned prior to the law by the same revelation that the Gentiles were exposed to. What revelation was that? Creation. Hence the Jew is under the same condemnation as the Gentile for rejecting the same testimony of God's creation and transgressing the established moral code. Remember last week, Brother Ron read one verse. I can't remember who read the other verse. In Ezekiel 16, verse 3, and verse 45, where Ezekiel tells Israel that their mother was an Amorite, excuse me, a Hittite, and the father was an Amorite. What's he saying? That before the electing grace of God, Abraham and Sarah were pagans, numbered in that one class of men. And that's what Paul's addressing in Romans 1. Are you seeing it? Do you understand that? And so they were both pagans and idolaters prior to electing grace. And the universal judgment was displayed against all suppression of truth and disobedience from chapter 1, verse 18b, all the way to chapter 2, verse 11. The origin and the historical timeline of the wrath of God is seen in chapter 1, verses 18b through 32. Now, this section from 18b to verse 32 can be divided into three sections. These three sections I have entitled Moves and Counter Moves. But these three sections are as such. Number one, the truth of God disregarded, verses 18b to 21. 
Number two, the truth of God distorted. Verses 22 to 31. And number three, and the truth of God defied. Verse 33. Tonight, I want to take a look at the truth of God disregarded. Verses 18b through 21, and we're only going to have time to do with the rest of 18b. What does it say here? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is against all those who seek to suppress the truth. The manifested wrath of God is, first of all, against, see the word against, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What does this mean? It means that God's wrath is punitive. It's punitive in nature, and it's not designed to do the sinner good. But rather, it is designed to punish the sinner for what he is and what he has done. A man asked and told Ralph Barnard one time, I don't believe in hell. Ralph Barnard responded and said, Why don't you believe in hell? He said, Because hell doesn't do the sinner any good. He went on to explain to the man, Hell is not designed to do the sinner any good. It's designed to punish him and to torment him. And that's what hell is all about. So, this hot fury of God, as expressed by the Greek word orgy, here for the word wrath, is not to be understood as the restraining grace of God. Ladies and gentlemen, restraining grace is an act of God's mercy intended for the good of men, to keep them from becoming more wicked than they already are. But this wrath of God, once it is kindled, it fans the hellfire that dwells in the bosoms of men. And if you do not believe that you don't, if you do not believe that you have hell in your heart, you are ignorant of indwelling sin. You've got no idea whatsoever how wicked you are in the eyes of God. When God gets done with a sinner, He exposes them for what they are. He exposes the wickedness of their hearts to the point that they'll despair that God will even venture to save them. And if you've never been under such Holy Ghost conviction, I just want to say to you, you know nothing of the grace of God. And that's all there is to it. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. I understood one thing when I was on the Holy Ghost conviction. I wasn't raised in church. But I know that when God started to convict me of sin, I became aware that things wasn't right between my God and I. And I knew that I was in trouble.
I couldn't explain it to anybody else, couldn't describe it, but there was no peace in my heart. There was a mighty travail of soul. It might as well have been the waves of the sea tossed about in my heart. Because I knew that I wanted to be saved, didn't know how to be saved, and everything I tried wasn't satisfying to God. And I knew that God was angry. Oh, when God shows a sinner that he's going to hell, you can't talk that sinner out of it. There's a sense of urgency that takes over a man's soul, a woman's soul, and they become urgent and they're seeking the Lord. You're not playing games. And you don't care what anybody else says. When God convicted me that I was lost as a lost church member, my best friend tried to talk me out of it. And I knew there was no talking me out of this. I had business to do with God. And if God wasn't, if God didn't save me, I'd go to hell. Have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced Holy Ghost conviction? One of the first things the Holy Ghost teaches you is the wrath of God. So are we talking about the wrath of God here in Romans 1? We are not talking about the restraining grace of God. God's restraints here are removed and sinners are allowed to fatten themselves in the vilest of sins in preparation for the divine slaughter. He lets them go. The pig rolls in the mud hole and he'll eat all the slop he gets. And he'll eat more than a share thinking that he's in heaven. But there's a purpose for the fattening. So when God cuts the cord and all the restraints of the sinner are removed, and he becomes as sinful, as wicked as he possibly could be in this life. He thinks he's having a heyday. That God's preparing him for judgment. This apocalyptic wrath of God is manifested against three things. It is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The punishment of God is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God punishes all men everywhere for what they are and what they have done. What they have done against Him and what they have done against one another. The fury of God is thus comprehensive and is described elsewhere in the Bible as a consuming fire. And I can tell you something about a fire. When my house burned down back January 9th of this year, it wasn't particular what it burned. It burned everything. It destroyed everything. Bibles, books, pictures, aluminum oxygen tanks, Aluminum pots, steel, burnt, ruined. Nothing escaped. Total loss. It's a consuming fire. The fire of God can lick up water. The fire of God can dissolve planets. 
the fire of God can cause the eyes of a man to drop out of their sockets and the flesh be consumed off their bones while they're standing. Such is the power of the wrath of God. Ungodliness in his verse expresses the sinner's natural hatred for God because he himself possesses a spirit of Antichrist that counts God as an eternal enemy. The sinner has never loved God and does not intend to do so. I have heard people tell me, and maybe you're one of them, Brother Brian, I have always loved God. According to the Bible, you're a liar. You came out of the womb hating God. You're an enemy against God. And God counts you his enemy. And yet because he's a God of love, he blesses those that hate and despise him. And that's the only reason why you breathe and have what you have. But until the saving grace comes to you, you will die in eternal death and you will hate God in hell forever. And God won't shed one ounce of mercy your way and he'll never love you again. You'll be cut off from the love of God and the fellowship of God and the presence of God for all eternity. Are you washed in the blood? In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. So for anyone to say that they have loved God is to expose himself as a liar. The term unrighteousness is an expression of defiance against the government of God and his moral code. In addition, it expresses the sinner's contempt for his fellow man. Hence, the long list of sins, if you read, ever read this chapter, you have a long list of sins that are given in those verses which men commit against one another. And these actions are done not because they love their fellow man, but because their passions are so unrestrained, they will violently and collectively overpower others to fulfill their perverted desires as an expression of hate. This apocalyptic wrath of God, the Bible says in our text, read it, is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth, or literally the Greek means to hold or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Sinners everywhere have a common cause. They are united in the suppression of the very truth of God by which men must be judged. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 2. Brother Doug, Romans chapter 2, verse 2. Read it for us, please. Very good, sir. Thank you. We are sure, Paul says, that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. Now, Paul said in chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The question I have for you tonight is what truth is being suppressed? It's in the text. Brother Mark, what truth is being suppressed? All right, the first one is what I'm looking at because that's in the immediate text. And that is the truth that Paul is saying that God's wrath is kindled against sin. And they suppress this. Sinners do not tolerate the message that the wrath of God is now currently being revealed and has sentenced men to eternal condemnation. The truth suppressed has to do with the knowledge of God, His existence, His right to reign over sinners and govern them. They hate being reminded that God as their Creator is also their ruler and judge. The truth suppressed is the fact, underscore this, that God is angry and He has every intention to punish sin, which includes the eternal destruction of sinners in the damnation of hell. They so hate this message, they cover their ears and say, Shut up! Shut up! I don't want to hear it anymore! Shut up! Hence the response of the crowd when they gnashed their teeth at the preaching of Stephen. What does it mean to gnash your teeth? You ever seen a wild dog? A dog that's angry, that's antagonistic, ready to attack? What does he do? He shows his teeth. I hate you. Shut up! My wife went on the back porch one early morning was greeted by a coyote, and he was not happy. How did she know he was not happy? He was showing some teeth. Bears show their teeth. Lions show their teeth. And when they start showing teeth, they're wild animals, and they've got one thing on their mind, and that's destroy you. You better treat them with respect. She went inside the house, grabbed the shotgun, went back outside, it was gone. They suppressed the truth. It tells us here in verse 18, in unrighteousness. Now, this is real important. Verse 18 and verse 32 go together. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 32. What truth are they suppressing? The fact that God hates sin, God's angry, and that God intends to judge all sin. Verse 32. Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. What specific truth is now God revealing? The fact that the wrath of God 
has been revealed and that God judges sin in verse 32, it echoes this sentiment. And it adds clarity as to how this truth is suppressed, which is by living a wicked lifestyle. When the sinner cannot silence judgment preaching, he oftentimes plunges himself into debauchery, deliberately intending on silence the cry of conviction by searing his conscience and the blinding of his own eyes. He hits the bottle, takes the drugs, smokes the weed, gets on the internet, immerses himself in a world of pornography to drown the voice of God. Shut up! Shut up! I don't want to hear it! They suppress the truth. You know what bothers me? I've no lost people, and I work with one named team leader. Named, his name is Jason McMillan. One of the kindest men I've ever met. Tender-hearted. Tender-hearted towards me. But the minute I talk to him about Jesus, you can see the, the wall go up. And these people who have a, bur a better personality than I do, as lost people, they're responsible, they're kind-hearted, they're giving, they love their wives, their children, they're financially secure, they take care of business, they're good workers, but they have zero love for Jesus Christ. And they're going to hell. And I can't do a thing about it, but preach to them the gospel. They're not going to go to heaven because they're good mothers, good grandmothers, good fathers, good grandfathers. If you have no love, Paul said, if any man love not the coming of Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. The criteria for any man going to heaven is whether they have a supreme love for Jesus Christ. And those that have no love for Christ, no matter what the religious background is, if they're not having a fervent love for Christ, they will perish in their sins. Let that soak in. It's not your love for mankind that's going to get you in. God's going to deal with you in the same attitude you have towards his son. And he's not making any exceptions. So, what are you doing? The silence, the convicting work of God. I know of men that were song leaders coming in our church. And because of the stress of the world, they go home and take a shot of liquor for them to unwind. And in time, God exposed them for what they were. And they haven't recovered since. How about it, gentlemen? How you doing with pornography? Ladies, you're not excused. Let me just share this with you. If you got to look at that stuff and have ever looked at that stuff to spice up your marriage, you've sinned against God. And you want to know why God hasn't talked to you. And you can't hear the voice of God. 
What about the filthiness of your sin that so hardened your heart, blinded you, made you totally insensible to the voice of God? You've confessed your sins to your blue in the face, but for whatever reason, the joy is gone, the fellowship is gone, and you have yet to find a way to restore the breach. And just because we're aged, it doesn't mean we're not guilty of what I just said. After all, some of us have to have an outlet some way. Is that too personal? Oh, when they are involved in sin and God cuts the rope, don't you see the seriousness of the wrath of God? Both verbs. Here in verse number 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And the verb, who hold down the truth, or who are suppressing the truth, both verbs are in the present indicative. Meaning, both events are taking place at the same time. As God reveals His wrath against wickedness, the ungodly are busy reacting to it to suppress His message. And they're doing so as expounded in verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God, and they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them, they continue their lifestyle knowing they're going to hell. But they're suppressing the message of it by searing their conscience. I want to share with you how wicked sin is. There are times as a Christian, you just think wrong and the Holy Ghost convicts you. That's not necessarily true every time. You can commit sin and the Holy Ghost not convict you. And he'll let you feel the effects of the blinding power of sin. No conviction, no Lack of peace. The waters are just as calm. And what's, you know what the tendency is? I cross that line. Let's see if I go over this line. And the next thing, and there's no conviction. And the next thing you know, you are 400 miles off the line you're supposed to be. And you are in trouble. The judgment of God's hovering over you. The chastening of God's hovering over you. And there's no conviction. What is your responsibility at that point? Obey the word of God. Conviction or no conviction. You know where the line is. Get back to the line and get on the other side. You don't have to wait for the convicting work of the Holy Ghost to get right with God. Am I making any sense? We're waiting on feelings when God has given clear commands in the Word of God what we're supposed to do. He's already told us what to do. You know what I have found? That when I started getting back to the line, the feelings started coming again. But there were no feelings in the departure. There was feelings when I was trying to draw nigh to God. So, from this point on, Paul explains... How men suppress the truth. How God reacts to the suppression. 
and why such wrath is justified. I came in here tonight burdened, knowing the subject matter I had to deal with. I didn't know how you were going to take it. I know that greater men than I have preached such things to you. But if we think everybody in this building is going to heaven, we have deceived ourselves. If we think that everybody that shows up on Sunday morning is going to heaven, we're deceiving ourselves. We're guilty of stuff in our hearts and our lives that no one else can see. God sees it, and he's making an issue of it, whether anybody else sees it or not. There's a reason why we're not experiencing revival. If we were as right with God as we're saying we're right with God, we would have had revival by now. But something's holding it back. You can blame it on the sovereign work of God all you want to, but I'm telling you that there's sin in the hearts of men, and until we deal with the idols of our heart, God will, hit, will hinder us. He will resist us. And I'm going to close by saying this. I remember a revival that broke out in India. And all those missionaries that were there. And when the revival broke out, most of those missionaries were repenting publicly because they were involved in adultery and fornication. And the whole churches didn't know it. And they were publicly confessing it to the church. If I was you... I'd make sure my heart's clean because I surely wouldn't want to have to confess it to the church. And yet God may require it of us before we have revival. That will embarrass you and strip you of your self-righteousness and humble you in the dirt and give you a contrite spirit, won't it? But God makes that the issue. Now you either do this or go to hell. Do this or die in your sins. Do this and have revival. I am not wired like Pastor Tommy or a Pastor David. I wish I was. I am wired like God wired me. And I don't know how else to say what I just said other than what I just the way I just said it. Oh, let God help me. <laughs> In my own heart, knowing that I'm lacking godliness and holiness. And you know what's so bad? I feel so, so weak, so without the strength sometimes to do anything about it. When we were yet without strength, Christ died for us. And that's the hope we have as children of God. Pastor Tommy, it's all yours.